Welcome to Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. We're so glad that you are listening with us today, and we hope that this message is a blessing. Well, for the last seven weeks, we've talked a lot about love. And when you think about movies and stories of love, maybe the best one or the best example of what it, what it can look like is The Princess Bride. And so in The Princess Bride, you have these two lovers, Wesley and Buttercup, and there's a wicked king who's trying to possess her for his own desires, his own reasons. And they overcome all of these obstacles, even death. Like even death, but he's only mostly dead until a miracle worker brings him back to life. And then in the nick of time, he rescues her and justice is served. They ride off into the sunset. And so that's the way that love looks like in the most of the stories we tell. But a lot of us know that there is the way that love can be or that we see it in movies and stories. Then there's the way that love truly is. In in our culture, in our world, we know that justice isn't always served, that marriages don't always make it, that people don't always ride off into the sunset. Sometimes the obstacles can't be overcome. And and so we can either accept that and see that and go, well, that's just the way that things are. Or we can see that God is calling us to something better. And that's what the Song of Solomon has been showing us, how we are called to something better. So let's, let's pick up in chapter eight, verse one. It begins with with the female lover speaking, and she says, Oh, that you were like a brother to me who nursed at my mother's breasts. If I found you outside, I would kiss you, and none would despise me. I would lead you and bring you into the house of my mother, she who used to teach me. I would give you spiced wine to drink, the juice of my pomegranate. His left hand is under my head and his right hand embraces me. So in these verses, she's daydreaming about the love they have in contrast to the way that love is for most other people. And she's like, there's the, there's the norm of society and then there's what God intended. And she's realizing that those things don't add up. And so for her, love is meant to be something filled with attraction, commitment, friendship, romance. And that should be the norm But sadly, for her experience, it's the exception. But as she's daydreaming about what love could be, it reminds us of the backdrop to this story. And so if we were to go back in time, if we were to study the cultural context surrounding this song of all songs, we would see a time where women were more of a possession than anything else. That that marriage was something people pursued for economical benefit, for political status, for financial gain. And and so women seldom had a say or or had a choice that was always trumped for other purposes. And so we realize that, that she is writing of a love that just wasn't known in this time. But what's beautiful about the Song of Solomon is it shows us that we're not created to just accept the world's broken relationships, the things that are culturally normal, we are called to go back to the way things God intended them to be. So really this song is inviting us back to the Garden of Eden in a beautiful way. In verse four, there's a little refrain. She says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. We've seen this throughout the the book and it's a way of her warning her friends of saying, look, love is a serious thing. It's something that you don't just jump in and out of. It's not something you approach lightly. Love is 
serious. And so she's trying to show how important that is. Then in verse five, she says, who is that coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Just just take note of that word leaning. It says, under the apple tree, and take note of that phrase, I awakened you. There your mother was in labor with you. There she who bore you was in labor. And so in verse five, she says, I've awakened this love. You see that word awakened. But it shows us that when this type of love is awakened, there's a certain way it's meant to look, right? So the idea of leaning in the Hebrew, that word, that concept is the support you have in marriage. So this type of love that's being described in Song of Solomon is ultimately meant to be fully experienced within a marriage relationship between one man and one woman. And then as she talks about it, it's not just this, well, I had to marry you because our family set us up. It's totally different where she sees this love like an apple tree. A tree is a picture of security, a picture of protection. But the fact that it's not just a tree, but an apple tree shows that this is a love that is satisfying. This is a a love like fruit that you would desire. And then she talks kind of in a a really uncomfortable way. She's talking about his childhood bed and, and how he was born. But the picture of the childhood bed is something that shows us security and sacredness. And so what she's saying is, look, the type of love that God has called us to, when it is awakened, it is something that is is sacred. It's something that is safe. It's something that is satisfying. It's something that is secure. And she's painting this beautiful picture of how God intended marital love to be. She continues in verse six, set me as a seal upon your heart, as a seal upon your arm, for love is strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. It Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. And so she talks about, she's like, set me as a seal upon your heart. Now, a seal in ancient times was something that was extremely valuable, both in its manufacturing, because it was made up of precious stones, precious metals, but also in its use as it was used to... to, show ownership or to show the value of a possession. It was, it was to put your name on something. And so people would use these types of seals like a signet ring, where you'd keep it on your hand. They would wear it around their neck like a necklace. It was something they, they protected and cherished. And, and so she's saying, keep me close, protect me, cherish me like you would a valuable thing in your life. And then she compares their love as she's describing it as something that's stronger than death. Is something that's stronger than the grave. And when you think about death and the grave, those are forces that no one can overcome. So it doesn't matter if you're, if you're looking online, how do I get young again? Or if you're saying, I'm gonna exercise, I'm gonna eat organic vegetables and fruits, or I'm gonna put this cream on my face. It doesn't matter, like at your best, maybe you can look like Tom Brady in your 40s. Probably not gonna happen. But no matter what you do, I can guarantee you this, you will die you will die because the grave is unrelenting. And so what she's saying about their love is that their love is powerful, their love is enduring, their love is unrelenting. Verse seven, she says, many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. And I love this just because she's talking about the power of their love, how their love endures, how their love is unrelenting. She recognizes that even the best love faces storms in life. 
Even the best marriages face obstacles that will try to drown out your love or try to wash your love away. Now, I love that, that this is brought up multiple times in the song because we need to know that marriages are going to be under attack. I've said this before, I'll say it again. If you study and look at the creation story in Genesis, you have the first marriage between Adam and Eve. And when you think about who's present in that relationship, it's more than just two people. It's not just a husband and a wife, and it's more than just two people and God. It's not just a husband, a wife, and God, but who shows up after the marriage? Satan. You see, Satan waits until they're married to bring forth his attack, because if he can destroy a marriage, he can impact generations, all right? So what we need to know is that after the wedding ends, that's typically when the greatest battle begins, so if you're engaged and you're like, we'll never face that in our relationship, I'm telling you, when your marriage begins, right, when the wedding ends, that's when the battle will start. That's when you will experience that. If your own sin nature isn't enough to derail things in your marriage, like the, the stuff that you bring to the table isn't enough, there is a spiritual component where Satan wants to destroy your marriage. So here's what I want you to hear. If you're married, maybe this is something you've heard for the first time and you need to hear it clearly. Or if you're not married, but you know that's where you're headed, where you're aiming at, you need to hear this, okay? Things will happen in your marriage that will try to destroy it. You need to resolve before the storm comes that you will be committed when they do. Your commitment for what, how you will respond and how you will hold on and how you will, you, will, you will endure needs to be resolved before the storm comes. Because it's easy to say you'll do it now. The real test comes when it happens. So whenever I do weddings, right? The, the couple doesn't listen to a thing I say. They're just like, get this over with. Like, like could you speed up, pastor? And so, but when, when, I, when I preach to them and after I finish my sermon, which is always unique, so I'm like, how many of their friends have heard other sermons? Do I need to change it so it's not the same, right? But when I get to the vow part, I will say something similar to this. I'll say, look, you're, you're about to make vows, but you're not committing to love each other now because we can see you do. You are, however, committing to be loving and faithful and true in the future, despite feelings or circumstances. If you're ready to make that serious commitment, would you face each other and join hands? And I would say 99% of the time, there's like joining hands and they're like, I don't know what he just said, but we're getting this done. And I'm, like, I'm wondering if I shouldn't just like smack him around like, like, did you hear what I just said? Like, like this, you're gonna get into the future and like, you're not gonna be as fit as you once were. You're gonna get into the future and you're gonna have like random things happen to your body. You're like, like you're gonna get to the future and you're gonna have a, a just a, a trail of, of mistakes that you've made and things that you've done and it's gonna get harder and heavier. And like in the future, you're committing to say, I'm not going anywhere. Are you ready to make that commitment? Are you right? Like, I wonder if I should be a little more forceful here. Like, this is a serious deal. And so what you do is you need to resolve before the storm comes that you will stay committed then, right? That you will stay committed when, the, when, the, when things do get rough, when it isn't just good, but when it is hard, that you will be committed through thick and thin. So I love how she recognizes that, hey, waters are gonna try to quench our love. Floods are gonna try to drown it out, but our love is going to endure, and she continues in verse seven, if a man offered for love all the wealth of his house, he would be utterly despised. 
what she's pointing out here is that there's a way that guys can think they can purchase this type of commitment. Like, you know what? If I make enough money, then I can give her the, the Land Rover that she wants. If I make enough money, then we can keep taking the cool vacations. If I get enough success in my career, then I'll, I'll have more time to do fun things. If I could, and you think like, if you just keep her financially happy that she'll be committed to you. And what he's saying here is, look, you can purchase, you can purchase romantic hookups or experiences, but you can't purchase commitment. And if you think you can, if you think you can, you're just fooling yourself and you should be despised. You cannot purchase this commitment. This is a type of love that you must find and a type of love that you must cultivate. Now, in verses 8 through 12, she's going to give two examples where she's comparing and contrasting between the way that love is in her world to the way that love can be. And so verse 8, she says, we have a little sister. These are, these are some brothers speaking. We have a little sister, and she has no breasts. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? If she is a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she is a door, we will enclose her with the boards of cedar." And so what's happening here is there's a dad that's not in the picture. So brothers have assumed or, or taken the responsibility of the marital arrangements. Their sister hasn't yet hit puberty yet. So she's young and she is also pure. And so when it talks about a wall or a door, it's referencing her virginity. And so they want to protect her purity, but the motivation isn't because that's what's best for her. The motivation is when she gets married off, she will be worth more money. And so for them, they see their sister, a woman, as their possession, someone to control, someone to leverage for either economic gain or political gain, right? And so she responds to this. She says, I was a wall and my breasts were like towers. Then I was in his eyes as one who finds peace. And so she says, look, I've grown up. I've hit maturity and I found something better than what you guys we're a part of. This idea of peace, we'll come back to that. Verse 11, she says, Solomon had a vineyard at Balahamon. That, that means house of many wives. So Solomon had a vineyard at Balahamon. He let out the vineyard to keepers. Each one was to bring for its fruit a thousand pieces of silver. And so a vineyard throughout the Song of Solomon has been symbolic of women. And so this is saying that, that Solomon had a harem. He had a house of many wives, or he was a husband of many wives. He had many women. But for him, people came to get these women from his harem, and they would pay money. So in other words, women for him were always a possession, something that he used for financial gain. So once again, we see, we see like, like, this is the way the world's operating. This is the backdrop to this song where women are just a possession. Women don't have say over their lives. Women don't have respect. Women aren't seen as equals. They're, they're, this is really sad to see that the way the women were treated here. And she speaks again. She says, my vineyard. Just, just notice, I love the declaration here, my. My vineyard, my very own is before me. You, O Solomon, may have the thousand and the keepers of the fruit, 200. What she's saying in verses 10 and verse 12 is, is she's, she's showing that she's actually the woman she's speaking of. Like these aren't just, these aren't just hypothetical examples. As you read chapter one, her brothers were trying to auction her off. As you read chapter three, she was just a woman in the king's harem. Like these are, these are her experiences, but what she's showing us is that she has now matured. 
And in her maturity, what she's saying to her brothers, what she's saying to the king is that you had no right to treat me as a possession because I am my own person. You had no right to ever try to control me. You had no right to ever leverage me. But now I found something better. Now I found peace. And so what she's showing is that the love that she's discovered in this song is a love that, that's shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace, for when everything was right. She's saying, what I have found, what I've discovered is a love that isn't just the way that the world operates and the way that things are. I found a love that is the way that God intended it to be. And so in verse 13, her lover speaks, a voice different than her brother's, a voice different than the king. It warms her heart. And then the last verse, verse 14, we see her love not being taken against her will, but freely given to the man that she's chosen. Right? So, so peace, shalom, the, the, the song of Solomon, the greatest song ever sung, shows us the way that God intended love to be. Right? So instead of, so the big takeaway for this whole series, right, is that the love we see in the Song of Solomon doesn't just accept the way things are in the world, but seeks to return to the way God intended things to be. The love we've seen doesn't just accept the way things are in the world, it seeks to return to the way God intended things to be. And so if we were to zoom out, if we were to zoom out and say, okay, like how, what it, like that peace, that shalom, that, that love that God intended, what does it look like? What does that love look like? We could, we could build out more than this, but I just want to give you five things. Right? Like that's more than three points. All right, five things. All right, first, this love is physical attraction. The love that we see for marriage is meant to contain physical attraction. The next thing we see is that it also has relational depth. So it's not just that's, that person's good looking. It's, it goes way beyond that to relational depth where people are fully known, okay? Then after that, it's, it's not only um, relational depth, it's forever commitment. It's I know everything about you, the good, the bad, the ugly, and I'm not going anywhere. I'm here to stay, All right? So it's physical attraction. It's, it's relational depth. It's forever commitment. It's continual cherishment, Right? It's continual cherishment where, where the lovers experience by the way they are seen, the way they're talked about, the way they're treated, that it's evidence to the watching world that they are the most important person to their lover. Continual cherishment. And then next is that it's an unrelenting pursuit. This love is an unrelenting pursuit that says, I will never give up. I will never give up on us. That's the type of love that God has created for us to experience in marriage. And when we, when we cultivate that, when we experience that, it has a greater purpose of showing the world how God loves us. So this book is showing us how we are to be married and how we're to experience the depths of, of marital love so that we can love each other in such a way that the world looks at us in our marriages and says, that's what God's like. And if that's what God is like, I want God too. Like, this is all about showing the beauty of Christ. So you're like, well, how, do, how does that, like, I'm, maybe you're sitting here and you're going, like, I'm really struggling to see this. Let me unpack it a little bit for you, all right? Physical attraction. Like, like is God, like, a physically, like, here's what this means. When God sees you, he looks at you and says, you are wonderfully made. 
Think about that. Like when God sees you, you might look in the mirror and be like, I'm flawed. I'm not this. I'm not that. But God's love for you says you are wonderfully made because you're made in my image. When you think about relational depth and forever commitment, God knows the depths of your heart. He doesn't know just the best foot forward that you show. He doesn't know just like the Christian cuss word. You're like, fiddly fump. Like he, like, he like knows the heart behind that. He's like, I know what they really meant. Like, like he, know, he knows the things that you hide from, from your friends, the things that you hide from the spouse, those thoughts. You're like, if anybody knew what was in my mind right now, they would run. He knows that. But he is forever committed to you, which means that because of Christ, if your faith is in Christ, God's love for you, when you are fully known, is that you are fully loved that his love for you doesn't change, that he doesn't love you more on your best days. He doesn't love you less on your worst days. Knowing you fully because of Christ, you are fully and forever loved by him. To know that that's how God loves you. And then you think about cherishing, right? Continual cherishment. God sees you and speaks over you and treats you in ways that the world knows how important you are to him. He speaks over you and says, you are my beloved. He speaks over you that you are his beloved child. He, he gives you grace. He gives you mercy. He's a good father who gives you good gifts. Like he, he wants you to know that you are cherished and important to him. And here's what's awesome. And don't, I want you to not miss this. An unrelenting pursuit. Maybe you're here today and you're like, like, I'm surprised this place didn't catch on fire. Like, you, maybe you're here today and you're thinking, I've really messed up. Like, Jeff, if you, if you knew the track record of what I've, what I've been through, what I've been doing, you would know that God would be holding me at an arm's length. But here's what the cross tells us. God will never give up on you. If your faith is in Christ, God refuses to let you go. He refuses to give up on you. His pursuit of your heart is un relenting. That's the type of love that our marriages are meant to display. And that's the type of love that God has for us. That's why we're called the bride of Christ as the church. So what do we do with this? A question, I'm going to get real personal on you guys for a second here. A question I've been wrestling with is how does my love display God's love? If If that's what God's love is meant to look like, Right? This, this physical attraction, this, this relational depth, this forever commitment, this continual cherishment, this, this unrelenting pursuit. If that's what God's love is meant to look like, and if that's what my life is meant to show the world, how does the world know the truths of God's love through the way that I love? And it's been hard for me. This is where I've got, like, I wonder if when the world sees the way that I love, we can detach it from marriage and we can just go other, like, when the world sees the way that I treat my kids, do they see a love that keeps no records of wrongs? Or do they see a love that has a track record of remember when? Because that's not what God does. God takes our sin and casts it as far as the east is from the west. When the world sees me try to correct my kids, right, in a way that I want them to feel like bad, 
It's like, do you know what this, you track mud through our house. Like, like do you know how hard that's going to be for me to clean up? Like, 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 and I really want them to feel like this didn't happen yesterday. It did. Like, it's like, like when I think about like, like, why did I, why did I like, why did I want my kids to feel the weight of that? Like the weight of guilt, the weight of shame, because God doesn't want us to carry guilt and shame. He took that to the cross. There's no condemnation. There's no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. So, I mean, I, I found myself going like, man, is the way that I'm loving Lucy, is the way, like, is my love? And so it's been hard for me to, to realize, like, I don't know how, like, I, I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm imperfectly showing this. And so it's been, it's been hard, but it's been good for me because I want to come back to the truth of the gospel. And I want to know these truths in such a way that they reach deep into the depths of my heart and begin to naturally flow out to my other relationships. And so what I want to do is I want us to take time to respond. And so we love to do this at Redeemer through communion. And that's, for, so that's something for Christians to do. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're going we're gonna to split this up. And I'm going to ask a favor. Don't pack up yet, right? It's like, oh, copy. Um, if you're not a Christian... Take time in this moment to consider the love that is being offered to you today. The love where the creator of the universe, the creator of the universe would speak over you, wonderfully made. I know all your flaws and I want to be committed to you forever. I want you to know what it means to be my beloved and I want to cherish you and I want to flourish you and I want to give you good gifts of grace. And I'm never going to give up on you. You can keep running. You can keep failing. I will never, like, consider what it would mean to have that love today. That's what's being offered to you in Christ. But for those of us who are Christians, um, we're going to take communion. That, that's where you, you take the cup of juice. You take the bread. But here's what I want you to do. Remember that Jesus died in your place. Okay, remember what this, what this cup and this bread symbolizes. But I want you to take time to sit and to remember what it speaks over you. To sit and say, okay, God, you say I'm wonderfully made. We just sang that, didn't we? I'll choose to remember what you said, right? Like we just sang that lyric. I just butchered it, so let me just read it. I'll praise you instead and declare what you said. I'll declare what you said. So as you hold that cup, declare that God says you are wonderfully made. Declare that God says you are fully known and forever loved. Declare that God sees you and speaks over you, beloved child, and he gifts you his grace because you are important to him. And declare over yourself that in all of your failures, God refuses to let go. He refuses to give up. And let that sink into your heart because that's the love that is given to us in Jesus. God, thank you for your word. God, it's been an honor to preach through this book. Um, God, it's been an honor to be trusted with your word. And so God, I ask that you would use this to strengthen us as a church. God, that you would rescue and redeem and, and, and heal and flourish our marriages. God, that you would prepare those who are going to be married. Um, but God, I ask that you would take a greater purpose than just strong marriages. 
God, that you would take what you're doing in our hearts and use it to show the world what you're like and how you love. So God, let our lives and let our lives, um, our love be an apologetic to the world of who you are um, so that others can know the goodness of Christ. Shalom, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us today. If you're interested in learning more about us, you can check out our social media or website. Grace and peace to you.